Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavigan. This is Dave O'Leary. And today we're going to be taking an in-depth look at the Kiss album, Sonic Boom. So following the release of Psycho Circus, KISS does a farewell tour. Um, they do any number of tours after that with various shifting lineups where that feature one or the other original member that came back. Sometimes Peter's in there, sometimes he's not. Sometimes Ace is in there, sometimes he's not. Eventually the lineup solidifies to having Tommy Thayer as the Spaceman and Eric Singer as the Catman. And 11 years go by before they put out another studio album, which for a band that used to put out an album every six months is a really long time. And there's probably a number of reasons for that. Uh, one, the record industry changed a great deal between Psycho Circus and Sonic Boom. Um, albums themselves, particularly rock albums, were not selling especially well. So artists were having to get very creative when it came to figuring out ways to ensure decent uh, sales of physical media. And that was everything from prints including an album uh, with every ticket sold on his tour um, mm -hmm. and all kinds of interesting tricks like that. Um, you know, there's a quote from Paul Stanley where he says he loves Chuck Berry, but when he goes and sees Chuck Berry and Chuck Berry is playing songs, the most recent song that he plays is 35 years old that can't be very much fun for him. Uh, on the other hand, Kiss had sort of solidified themselves as a bit of Americana, as a legacy act, right? And so they weren't in a position where they were necessarily getting any pressure to put out new studio albums from the record company. Um, they were able to pull in average 6,000 people a night if they're playing in North America by themselves, if they're doing a co-headlining tour with another strong rock act, be it Aerosmith, Motley Crue, Def Leppard, double that, 10 to 12,000 a night, right? Mm -hmm. So um, there was every possibility that they were never going to put out another studio album. And then Dave O'Leary came along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let me take you back on that. Is that where you want me to interject yeah. that perspective? Yeah. Okay. So I'll let you guys make your own decisions on what happened here. I can just tell you from my perspective what happened. So Keith LaRue, LaRue and I back then were talking about this absence of time you know, and Kiss putting out an album. And of course, Gene had said repeatedly that there was no real business model that he was interested in. If somebody could show me a business model uh, that, that would satisfy me, then Kiss would be interested in doing another record. Paul was pretty much of the same mind at that time. But taking you back, about that point in time, um, Kiss had already done 
their Japanese album that they put out initially wasn't supposed to be released at all, but you know they were looking for the mechanical rights aspect of this when they did the the uh, the re-records as as they're mm-hmm. commonly known, right? That bonus disc on Sonic Boom. Well, at that time too, we had um, Journey um, was signing uh, an agreement with Walmart, right? Mm-hmm. On the uh, on their what was it the uh, um, their their Generations album on one of those. Uh, but anyway, it was the new album with Arnel Panetta. Right. And, and the Eagles had, did one too, I should say. And, and I said the Eagles did one too. And I was also aware that even though it hadn't come out quite yet, there had also been an agreement in place or a contract between ACDC and Walmart. And so uh, I had brought that up to Keith LaRue. And I said, one of Kiss, they already have half of this done. They already have a greatest hits album in the can. And, I, you know, and Foreigner was looking to do the same thing, by the way. So Keith had told me, he goes, well, do, look, do the research on it. Do the homework, put it together, and I will bring it forward. And so I had done the research on it. I had reached out and made uh, some contact with Walmart, asked to see, you know, asked, how does this actually work? And who are the points of contact? And uh, what are some of these artists doing? So I put together um, this information at, at Keith LaRue's request, and I forwarded it to him, and he forwarded it to Doc. Now the next thing we know is that Keith uh, Kiss is signing a contract with Walmart for what became Sonic Boom, and I told them at the, that time through Keith, it's like, listen, you guys already have half of this done. You know, if Walmart wants something um, uh, as as kind of an enticement, if you would, um, for Sonic Boom to have that re-records that greatest hits, so you already have that in the can. You've already released that in Japan. So why not repackage that in the United States as that second bonus disc for Walmart and do it that way? And then the next thing we know, um, I'm getting a call that, yeah, it's the album is actually being worked on. And they're using the, the same basic studio and, and, um, and, and crew that they used on those re-records. And then uh, I got a call from Keith back around that time, too, telling me the album would be called Sonic Boom. And, and there we have it. Now, did, uh, I will say that it. Doc, uh, Doc McGee ever tell me in any of the times I'd seen him since that that is 100% all Dave O'Leary's idea? No. But I can tell you I did the homework <laughs> and I presented it to the band and shortly thereafter they were moving forward with a deal with Walmart. Right. Wow. And it, we should say too that wow. when the album originally came out at Walmart it wasn't just the album itself plus the all the re-records you also got a dvd that's right uh as well Mm -hmm. which is not a bad deal for 12 bucks not at all (laughs) yeah so that's the backstory as i know it okay um and the album is co-produced by greg collins uh Mm -hmm. who is a producer engineer um bass player guitar player he kind of came up through the uh, studio system as an assistant engineer. The first album that he would get first engineer credit on was Red Hot Chili Peppers, Californication. And the way that he started uh, his involvement with Paul was that he ended up mixing some of the songs on Paul's solo album uh, that came out uh, prior to Sonic Boom. And he's pretty much been their go-to guy Ever since he um, not only did he work on Sonic Boom, Monster, he was in charge of all of the music for Kiss Meets Scooby Doo. He mixed all the music for 
um, the Kiss Live in Vegas DVD. He went on to do the same for the Motley Crue, The End uh, Live DVD. And he's got a lot of pop credits too, but those are some of his, his bigger rock things that he's done. And he's a Kiss fan. He grew up being a Kiss fan, which, you know, he might be the first producer that has actually worked with the band that it, that actually grew up as as one of their fans, which I think is interesting because obviously guys like Bob Ezrin, uh, while he might like Kiss's music, was more of kind of a contemporary creative. Um, and, right. this, and this is the first time that you actually have a fan working on the record, which I think in, in some ways makes a difference. You know? Yeah, um, for sure. So anyhow, the way they chose to record this album, they were actually coming on and off different legs of their tour. So they wrote this album very quickly. Although they were in the studio for four months, it was really on again, off again. They would write three songs very quickly, rehearse them, take them into the studio, lay them down, go back on tour. Um, so it was kind of recorded in a bunch of short bursts of three, four songs at a time. Uh, they recorded at Conway Studios, and uh, the initial tracking at least, and then they finished up in Greg Collins' studio, The Nook, um, between May and August of 2009, and then the album was put out August 6th, 2009. And um, it sold well, it went gold eventually, uh, which during that time was, you know, nothing to sneeze at for a band that's been around that long. So I guess without further ado, we'll, we'll go into this track by track. And the first song, the first single uh, and video, Modern Day Delilah. Okay, this actually stands out as my favorite song on the album, even though I keep trying to find another one. Um, only because of the fact that I spent the first two minutes going, who is Delilah? Stamps and Delilah. It's the right. hair lady. You know what I mean? And trying to put that all together and, and re remembering the, I guess it's a myth, right? Or is it a... Well, it's actually it's a Bible. story from the Bible yeah, because Bible Samson yeah. is a long-haired Jewish guy. Right. Huh? right. <laughs> it comes from, the, from his hair. He gets his strength. He's a mighty warrior. He gets right. his strength from his hair. Cut it off or whatever. Yeah, she's a harlot who tricks him into revealing his secret cuts off his hair, they tie him up uh, to the pillars, and then they kind of humiliate him and make fun of him and forget about him. But because they forget about him when they're not paying attention, his hair grows back yeah. and he kills all the Philistines that have done this to him and himself when he pulls at the, at the uh, pillars and brings down the entire temple right. on them. Yeah. So that's the, in a nutshell, that's the story that we're playing on here. Okay, right. So I just, I like the idea that they uh, pay homage to that story. I really like the riff, you know what I mean? It's a real uh, killer riff in there. Um, and Paul's vocals sound fine to me. I, I watched like, I guess one YouTube guy saying, this is when Paul was about to lose his voice or whatever. But I mean, I don't know. I see, it seems to be fine to me. Yeah, I think his vocals are strong on this song. Yeah. There are definitely songs on yeah, the album start to hear some some issues. Yeah, yeah, but I like it. Uh, it's uh, as even though I keep trying to find another song to be my favorite because I can't. 
<laughs> so this is my favorite one. So as it stands out, and it's part of, it's the riff, and it's the you know trying to, and then the homework that I had to do to remember to figure out the story for Delilah because I was like Greek myth, Bible story, you know what I mean? And I just whatever. So it's clever, good song. Dave, yeah, I like it. It, it kind of reminded me of something that may. Uh, with obviously a different production, kind of reminded me a little bit of something where somewhere between Creatures of the Night era and Lick It Up. Okay. Uh, in some ways to me. Um, it is, uh, you know, I like the song. It's not my favorite song on the record. Okay. But I, I, but I do think that this was the, the album that you could start to see the change in Paul's vocals. Yeah. You know, I mm-hmm. definitely can hear it myself. I can hear it on there. Um, you know, we were all aware of it. We saw it happening when it was happening, pretty much, obviously, as fans in real time. Um, I, I, you know, jumping forward, you know, to the live um, uh, version of this, it just wasn't the strongest song to open with either. I, I don't hate the song. I like it. I can take it in small doses. Um, but I think it, it's a, it has a different personality for me than the rest of the record. Um, it's a good album opener, though. Um, but again, not my favorite. Okay. Mike? Oh, when I first heard it, I was reminded of the fact that, you know, Paul's uh, never been quiet about the fact that he's a big uh, Tom Jones fan. I think early on he wanted to say <laughs> that he wanted to sound like Tom Jones. And, you know, some of the albums in my house uh, when I was growing up, um, you know, that were, you know, before I started to buy Kiss Records were things like, you know, Tom Jones' Greatest Hits and, you know, Three Dog Night and all these sort of things. I remember hearing a song, you know, My, 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 Delilah, you know, so ah. when I heard the song, I was like, oh, okay, all right, so I, I you know, he's, huh. yeah, you know, but in some way he's kind of influenced by that. Interesting. Um, but, you know, John had mentioned the riff. Um, to me, there's a Zeppelin tune called For Your Life on the Presence album. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that riff is, is key to this song, so cool that they pull in references, you know, from, from their influences, you know, uh, when they're writing songs, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, you know, really. Yeah. Um, but also too, there's that uh, Heart of Chrome, they sort of, on this whole album, they really steal from themselves and they steal from others in a way. Oh yeah. There's that, which is from Heart of Chrome, you know, but they use that for the pre-chorus into the, the chorus. And uh-huh. it, to me, it's like, it's like a, I don't know, when I hear this record, I think, I see where they're going with it because they wanted to do an album like Rock and Roll Over. Yeah. This sounded like classic Kiss was the point of reference. And we'll get into that too. But like, you know, they definitely, they want to point out too, that I think this is the, the first record since uh, Lick It Up where there have been no outside songwriter. Mm-hmm. It's all the guys in the band. Right. Writing songs to this record, right? Paul Stanley had some stipulations. He said, if we're going to do this record, no okay. outside songwriters, no outside musicians. I mean, I think they had one guy play some piano parts or whatever, but for the whatever, most part, yeah. nobody's going to be playing each other's instruments. We're not going to have Bruce Kula come in and play half of Gene's bass lines because he doesn't feel like doing them, you know. Uh, so, yeah, everybody plays their own instrument. Everybody wrote or co-wrote these songs together. Yeah, this is the most band album they've done in who knows how long. Yeah, and I think... We'll get into the songs, but I think as an album cohesively, that that helps support the record cohesively. It works as a, as a band concept. I think bands are better when they work together and they don't they're not influenced by other things and if not trying to be something else other than than they need to be, you know. And I think this this works. But the, I think the thing that's lacking on this record period is you know in the '70s, albums sound like the '70s, but with Kiss records, they always had this larger than life quality. 
you know, and never mind like Destroy, but like even Rock and Roll Over, like nobody's ever recorded an album that sounds like Rock and Roll Over since. I mean, you, you've got your classic 78 doing their Kiss, go Kiss songs, and they've kind of nicked some of the tones. I think the thing that would have sold this record more so is if they didn't sound like they were recording, you know, 10 years ago, if they made it sound like a record that was recorded in, in the, the, the mid to late 70s. Okay. Um, so uh, about that, uh, Paul has said that he wanted to record a makeup Kiss album, right? And his okay. points of reference were the sweet spots in Gene's songwriting around Rock and Roll Over and Love Gun, specifically the songs Plaster Caster, Ladies Room, things of that ilk. And okay. um, Craig Collins did his research about how they recorded Rock and Roll Over, right? So this album was recorded in a similar way, or at least as similar as it could have been to yeah. the way that Eddie Kramer worked. Um, you know, they went and made Gene play Gibson basses. He ended up using a ripper, I think, not a grabber. Um, no, but I had to grab her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, we know, John. Yes. I love that bass. <laughs> yeah, it had pretty high action. <laughs> they recorded all analog and then transferred it into digital after that. Um, you know, classic guitar tones pushing air with actual Marshall amps and other amplifiers. So um, that was the sound that they were going for. And I think Rock and Roll Over in particular was definitely a loose template uh, for it. And I, overall, my criticism of this album is that uh, much like Rock and Roll Over, it it has a great immediacy to it where it doesn't sound like they're overthinking or overcooking these songs. Um, it doesn't sound like they're just doing the bare minimum paint by numbers. Like it's an obligation, you know, they're not, they're not trying to chase any trends. They're trying to be themselves, but there there's a fine line again, like with rock and roll over between immediacy and disposability. Right. And I think some of these tracks uh, are refreshingly immediate sounding, and and but some of them are are forgettable. I don't think that that's the case with Modern Day Delilah. I actually really like this song. Um, to me, it's almost like a a modern day version of "I Stole Your Love." Um, mm -hmm. They say that a, an artist can write one great song about every subject, but a great artist can write a hundred great songs about one subject. And I think Paul in particular has a profound and intimate understanding of the, the sexual power dynamics in relationships, right? Mm -hmm. The whole thing that the Stones touched on with the change has come, she's under my thumb. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it's like that whole saying that, everything is about sex except sex and sex is about power. And Paul understands that at a very intimate level. So to me, that one line, it's almost a throwaway line in the song, but queen to slave, that's a heavy yeah. fucking line, man. Yeah. You know, for a pop metal song, it's like, holy shit. Yeah. Right, this seems to be the best written song on the album too. I mean, at least the most thought out in terms of how they're building the lyrics. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing about this song that's always bothered me, Tommy's solo, 
feels like it should be a 12 bar solo and it's a 16 bar solo and i feel yeah. like they they recorded two alternate endings to it and they couldn't decide which one to go with and so they just said oh let's just extend it and make it 16 bars because it kind of repeats itself and it doesn't yeah. really it doesn't progress anywhere it just sort of is a variation on the same theme I wish that they had truncated the solo and just made it a little tastier that way. And, and if I, I'll jump in on that since I've got a guitar in my hand, you know, as I always do. Um, for sure, uh, there's that thing where he does like that watching you descending, trilling riff. But it, it's, you know, it's classic watching you. But then he goes to the section where he does like the overbends and they do the overbend section again. Yeah. It has already been done. So maybe it should have been like, you know, if you're going to reference watching you, which they might have, then truncate it, you know, much like watching you, you know, ended, you know, I agree, Dave, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with what you're saying on this. I mean, but this album, though, I mean, looking at it, this is album is putting all of those elements of the 70s, in, for the most part, and yeah. throwing them into a blender, right. you know, between Tommy's acisms all over the record nods to their songwriting from the past with all those double stops and and you know you think about rock and roll over mr speed those doubles those, those double stops suspended chords all that, they're all over this record i mean there's really not a lot about this record that was not some way or another a nod to their songwriting of the past um and, and some of it's more subtle but it's certainly to me it's obvious from front to back other than this song this song is a cool song because it is Probably the most unique song in a lot of ways on this record. Right. Um, yeah. Tommy, I just read an interview with him recently where he said, looking back and listening to this album, he feels that the lead work on it is especially derivative. And if he could change one thing about that, he would not make it quite as derivative. I mean, there are there are licks on this album where it sounds like they went back and just copied and pasted some of Ace's solo. Yeah lick for lick you know and yeah. I, I know that that's what uh gene and paul were asking him to do right they wanted to recreate that sound that they had with ace around 77 76 um but there's a fine line between <laughs> imitation and plagiarizing yourself yeah or plagiarizing ace i mean yeah. you know and i think well yeah <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, just a little perspective here. I mean, think about it. You, you've had, this is, Tom is the new guitar player in the band. And this is his, essentially, you know, his quote unquote you know, recording debut with the band as a full member, right? Right. Um, and this is the first time in their history where, you know, the new guy wasn't brought in to, to sound like the new guy. Yeah. You know, like Vinny was brought in to sound like, you know, Vinny, you know, you know, you know, debatable. And also, you know, Mark St. John was brought in because they wanted him to sound like, you know, Mark St. John and Bruce Kulik was like the in-between who could do all that stuff and still kind of make it sound something like Ace would do. And also do historically, you know, when they're recording the stuff for the fourth side of the live too, when Bob Kulik was recording solos, they were saying, you know, no, Ace wouldn't play that note. <laughs> so right. there's always been historically that, that, that view of, you know, what would Ace do? Yeah, And, you know, for us as guitar players, like, let's say we were all, we had the opportunity to audition for Kiss and be the new guitar player. I mean, what would our approach be? For me, I would say, well, I would approach it from what would Ace do? 
Me too. That would be the point of reference. I, I, I couldn't do what Vinny did. I might be able to try to do what Mark, uh, what, uh, what Bruce could do, but I could not do what, you know, Mark St. John could do, but I would always take it as, you know, the, the classic is, you know, agenda is the original lineups. Sound like what, what, what Ace do. And I think here is the case where they've got a guy who studied Ace's guitar licks. And he was the guy as the point of reference. It was the guy that they knew that they brought into the camp and said, okay, do this and, and do what Ace would do. So, you know, you really couldn't find a, a better guy to, to do what they did on this record in terms of, you want to call it nicking or, you know, in, being influenced by Ace in a way. Is, is it obvious? Yes, it is obvious. But at the same time too, it, you know, as a Kiss fan, it's kind of what, you would have all, what we've always expected the other guitar players in Kiss post Ace to do. And we never got that. Okay, but what I would say to that is, you know, I'm not saying that Tommy's lead playing is as creative or innovative as Ace's was, particularly at his peak, yeah. but he's a fine guitar player in his own right. If you listen to the Black and Blue albums, yes. um, you know, and I, I think they could have let him be a little bit more of himself. And I think Monster, they did. And I think it makes it a stronger album. You know, just um, if I had one criticism of Tommy as a lead guitar player, it's that he has a tendency to go for the safe note. I mean, it's never the wrong note. It's always a note that's there in the chord that he's playing over. But sometimes that's not the note that you want to hit. And that's not that the, the note that Ace would go for, right? Mm -hmm. Because Ace didn't feel quite as slavishly devoted to right. playing the notes and the chords that he's playing over. So, you know. Yeah. Well, there's another ace thing that it's really, it's difficult for people to really, to, to wrap their minds around and to try to describe this particular part of ace's essence and his approach to his playing. It's his vibrato. Yeah. Ami does Big not time. have the same vibrato that ace does. You could try all day. You could try all day. It may be a simple technique to a lot of people, but I've worked a lot over the years on just vibrato technique. And but Ace got that thing in his playing, and I really, you know, his phrasing is fantastic, right? Within his limited vocabulary, if you want to call it, of knowledge of scales and maybe playing a, a major pentatonic over a minor, you know, he does those little things and he makes them work. But it's his vibrato, and Tommy does not have that same approach, and that's part of the thing that's different on this record is you're trying to capture the spirit of aces playing in a lot of places or cop them from note for to note for note but without the vibrato it's a different thing that's why they should just let tommy be tommy and i would say that that yeah. mike and i you you and i have had conversations about your problems with tommy's vibrato um and, and again i and again listen let me just say right now tommy is obviously qualified for the job he's in there he's got it going and he's a fantastic guitar player and he's done great work on black and blue and as well as his work with kiss you know I, this is no discredit to his abilities as a guitar player and his contribution to the band or to his contributions to black and blue or whoever he works with but but at the same time as kiss fans we are dedicated to the cause and we have issues and we will discuss those. So yes, Dave. Right. And I would say actually Tommy has a fine vibrato, but he has one vibrato. And I think Ace has actually three or four different vibratos is what yes. it really boils down to. Yeah. 
Yeah. And at the same time, too, if you compare uh, Ace to, to Clapton, I think a lot of times everybody says, you know, Eddie Van Halen's always said, like, Eric Clapton has a certain vibrato. And Eric Johnson always says, Clapton has a certain vibrato. And that's the Clapton vibrato. He's, he's got essentially one vibrato, you know? Yeah. Whereas Ace has multiple vibratos, which is the ultimate credit as a guitar player to Ace. And he always, he, but at the same time, too, I think Ace has a way to, to do vibrato. And this is probably way too technical for anybody who cares about, you know, this podcast. But Ace is always in tempo with, the beat yes when it comes to vibrato right unless he's unless he's trying to play a triplet over the beat which he does too sometimes but yes which he does yeah but if he's bending a note he's doing that one that 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 sort of siren type vibrato it's it's within the tempo of the of the music almost probably a little too laid back but it's in the pocket though and it's in time it's the pocket it's the groove yeah right and the other element bass is playing, which you're never going to capture on this, and I'll leave it at this with Tommy. It's again, it's not, it's not an indictment of Tommy's playing. Right. He's a fine player. Yeah. But a lot of his technique is also in his right hand. Yeah. You know, it's his it's a, it's a approach to picking. It's that yeah. shirt. It's those things that are, if you look at Tommy, he just picks differently too. So, yeah. but so when you try to sound like Ace and you tell the guy sound like Ace and play all those Ace riffs, it's just not going to come across the same way as a fucking guy who's just, it's innately in his DNA to play with a certain technique with his right hand and a vibrato with his left hand. Those two marry together and they make this wonderful thing called Ace Frey. Thank you very much. Right. I was just watching an interview with one of the guys that was a producer engineer on some of Ace's recent solo albums. And he said, it was funny because he was talking about this. He was saying like, Ace plays so far behind the beat when he's playing, it's almost borderline too late. It's like he stumbles into every single beat just in the nick of time. And he's like, and it's funny to me as a producer because he's like, if I'm producing my own material, he goes like, I would go, oh my God, that's way too far behind the beat. I need to re-record that and fix it. He goes, but with Ace, when I hear him do it, I go, man, that's perfect. It's got such swagger. It's like... Can I on that? You know, let me let me piggyback on that too as well because this is not about Ace, but really it's really about you know, the lineup that's on this record. But we were talking about the things that are missing from this record. There was that classic Ace rhythm guitar playing too that's not there. Like yeah. when he plays those things in um, Love Gun. Yeah. There's that space and there's that sustain that that. These are the things that are missing from this record. I mean, granted, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for this record and I appreciate this record, but those are the things that us as KISS fans recognize that are missing from this record. And again, it's it's a whole different... It, it, they've even said, like, if you put, like, Jeff Beck through Eddie Van Halen's guitar rig, Jeff Beck is going to sound like Jeff Beck. He's not going to sound like Eddie Van Halen, you know? Right. Uh, you know, nobody sounds like everybody else. And maybe that's the true thing. Maybe they should have said, Tommy, do your thing and, and just let it be what it is. But if you're going to do a record that sounds like an old Kiss record, then go the extra mile and, and bring that element in. But either way, you know, I mean, this is as close as, as, as they've gotten right. to that. Okay. Russian roulette. It's not bad. I, I mean, I kind of dig the, the riff in it. I mean, this album is full of, for lack of a better phrase, tasty riffs, but uh, the song feels unfinished. I don't, I don't know what the song's about, no matter how much I've listened to it. Yeah. I can't figure out what the song is about. It doesn't really particularly stand out. Although the chorus, I find catchy. I find myself humming, you know what I mean? At random intervals when I'm, you know, sitting on the pot and going to the bathroom or whatever. 
but uh, it just feels like an unfinished song. Dave? Yeah, I do like the base of G's uh, approach to this, at least at the front end of this, with that, almost that call and response thing. There'll be the guitar part, but then there's his bass playing between those lines. Yeah, call and response thing between the guitar and the bass. It's very cool. I think he's got some of those cool walking bass lines in places here. Yeah, I think it, if memory serves, um, he's got that double time thing that happens on the maybe on the pre-chorus or something. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm remembering the right song here in my yeah. head. Um, I do like this song, um, but it, I think it's, it feels to me a little bit like it's two or three other songs that he kind of put together. Um, and, and I think the, the chorus to me is a little awkward. It feels a little fast, a little forced. It's, it just feels unfinished. Okay, you're right. I'm, I should have mentioned that. That is in my notes to talk about the bass playing. I mean, I was kind of impressed that he had written an actual bass line. Before, <laughs> so. I, like the little, I like the little grunty, whatever, pre-chorus or post-chorus bridge yeah, or whatever cool. he has there that's kind of neat i've heard people say it's you know at first i was like this is kind of cheesy and then i was like no nah, this fits the song but again i wish there was you know i don't know man like i kept thinking of the deer hunter every time they he sang the song was like, <laughs> one shot right one shot <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly mike your thoughts yeah i mean you know it, it works as, as a Gene song. It, it seems like a bunch of riffs thrown together. Um, when it goes to the pre-chorus and it goes up tempo, it seems a bit odd to me. It seems a little bit forced. Um, you know, and you know, again, throughout this record, there are classic Kiss references. It, they'll, they'll go back to their old lyrics, you know, out of the frying pan, into the fire. And, Have you know, that in my book too. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, which, you know, it worked before and I guess it'll work again. <laughs> um, but, you know, also, too, you know, in a positive way, you know, if, if Tommy's going to do, you know, a Kiss-like record and a, and a Kiss-like solo on a Kiss record, um, this solo reminds me of Bruce Kulick's style in a way, you know, so it's cool that he can pull from different styles. Like, it doesn't, this is a solo that doesn't just sound like a, you know, a Starlicks or a Hotlicks version from the 80s of, you know, Ace Frehley's you know, <laughs> Greatest Licks, you know, which we've all seen, right? You know? Yeah. Which Ace has never done until, you know, the thing he did, you know, anyway, you get my point. You know, it, it, there's a diversity when it comes to the solo approach to this song. And I think that's cool that uh, that he took that approach. But uh, it, yeah, the song, you know, as I said, it's not really the, the kind of song if I was in the band and said, okay, this is my strong track as as me as a songwriter. I want to be song, you know, song two and and that's it. You know, it, it just doesn't, it. but at the same time too, maybe Dave, you can get into too with the lyric concept of, of the Russian roulette thing. Do you really have just one shot? <laughs> You know, but I don't let your backbone slip. Right, well, that too, right? You know, because <laughs> right, yeah, because we're a blues band. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I think what he's trying to say is, you know, ultimately, any woman that comes his way has one shot with him, and it's up to him whether or not she receives the bullet in question, right? But I mean, <laughs> I, I. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the I, 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 I kind of scat thing. I, 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 I want to leave that on the cutting room floor every time I hear Gene do that. Um, I, again, I think this is pretty disposable. I mean, I don't think it's any worse than some of the B material. I mean, you know, it's relatively close to a song like Love Em and Leave Em or Plaster Caster, not some of Gene's best stuff, but it, you know. It's okay. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe I was just trying to be nice you know, yeah. in my assessment of it. So. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, like I said, I mean, it, it is not the greatest song, but it does, it has an actual part that Gene wrote. So, I mean, that's, 
as a bass player and sort of that was what I was drawn to immediately. And then the rest of the time I couldn't get anything out of the song at all. But so. keep in mind too, it's also a, a Paul and Gene co-write. It is. Yeah. Oh wow. Oh yeah, you're right. I'm looking at I mean, I've not now. been able to find anything about you know who wrote what, but um cool that they you know had a co-write co-writing uh, credit on, on on the album. Yeah, one of several actually. Yeah. So next song, never enough. You know, throw everything in the kiss blender and something comes out. And the, you know, I, I liked it. Again, decent riff. Um, but the it just, you know, didn't really stand out to me. It's not totally disposable, but it's, you know, it rocks, but not as much as I wanted to. Not memorably. Dave? You know, this is one I've heard, you know, I'm sure you guys have heard too. People uh knocking the song for its its uh let's call it homage to poison. Yes. But let's be Poison ripped off mm. the riff from Kiss many times over, right? It's 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 something that they used in the early days a lot, but they probably stole it from the raspberries, right? Uh, go yeah. all the way. Yeah. Fantastic song, by the way, um, in my opinion. But yeah, you know, I I, I I hear what John's saying. I do like the song. I think it's okay. It's a serviceable song. It works at this place in the record. Again, it's got those little things. If you listen too closely enough, you hear those little double stops and and all those, you know, those those niceties going on, the little winks to the rock and roll over album. Um, I, I've heard worse Paul songs. This is definitely, again, this for inside joke. It's not reading my body, so uh, you know, it's it's always going to be a step up from there. So, it, it, you know, it's not on my power playlist, but it, I wouldn't turn it off if somebody turned it on. Yeah, that is something I, I hate. To, I don't want to jump on you, Mike, before you go, but that is something about the album. The album consistently holds my attention. There's not a moment where I'm like, skip, this sucks. Yeah. You know what I mean? But there's also not a lot of moments where I'm like, oh, wow, this is really good. You know, it's just, it's just perfectly serviceable. Sorry, go ahead, Mike. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, good. No, absolutely. These are, these are great points. And, and today, in today's point, for sure, I remember... Um, when Poison released the song Nothing But a Good Time, I remember thinking, wow, they must have just listened to, or somebody, you know, for Christmas got, you know, a copy of, you know, the first Kiss album and they learned how to play Deuce. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it was like the same thing. You know, yeah. but, you know, but then again, at the same time, too, with this song, the chorus is very reminiscent of White Snake's Slide In. Oh, yeah. 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 You know, so, you know, and they've been all on bills with white snake, you know, before. So, you know, it, it all comes into play, I guess. But either way, it stands as a kiss song. It works. It's strong. It, it's a good, it's a, it's a good uh, quality, you know, Paul vocal. Um, I also, I also kind of hear uh, Bruce, you know, influence on, on the guitar solo as well. Okay. And ultimately, I think the, one of the most interesting things, and again, this is back to the point of where they revisit, you know, the classic kiss things. The breakdown is very similar to uh, King of the Nighttime World with like the, the marching drum beat and the feedback mm. and the bass notes and mm -hmm. stuff. You know, that, that's a cool homage to, you know, the classic, you know, Kiss stuff. So cool that, you know, they're, they're aware of that and they bring that element in, into the record. Um, but, you know, it, it's a strong, it's a strong Paul vocal. And, I, you know, for me, that again, to John's point, that keeps my interest. You know, I can look beyond the, the obvious influences of, you want to call it influence or references to Poison or Whitesnake, but it works as a Kiss song. And Paul's vocal, you know, sells it for me for on, on that regard. Right. Then again, can I say this too? And we'll lead into the lyric thing. Never enough. Never. What is never enough? 
you know it's such a cliche that it's just well no uh, but like you know let's let's get into this because there's you know obviously you know songs from bands like la guns like it's never enough just to hold you it's never enough to you know just to please you oh maybe it's never enough uh-huh. Yeah, but, but what is he saying here with this with this chorus? I, I think what he's trying to say is that he can never get enough of life and life. you know okay. the and living life to the fullest and having sex and enjoying yeah. himself. Right. right. Um, okay. It's standard. It's standard uh, rock bravado. You know what I mean? And they're at the age where they should have. I don't know, man. <laughs> Like talk about what happens when you get never enough and how it turns out. Like, well, that's you know, called I mean, the blues, John. You know, it's funny. I probably don't listen to this album very much just due to the fact that it's not on Spotify. It's not on mm. Apple Music. So it just doesn't come up that much. Um, but I did hear this song on Sirius Radio, like out of the blue the other day. And it sounded fresh to me. I was like, oh, you know, this is actually kind mm-hmm. of a cool song. Um, not to correct a too fine a point here, but I would actually argue that, yes, Poison definitely rips off the beginning of Deuce in Nothing But A Good Time, but I think Paul rips off a different part of Nothing But A Good Time in this song. And I heard it the first time that I heard this song, and I, it was hard to get beyond that, the fact that it was so derivative of nothing but a good time. But um, I, I, I sort of see this as the, the the sister song, maybe to get all you can take, you know, you can never get enough. Mm, okay. um, so again, it's okay. My litmus test is if they broke this out in concert, would I be like, yeah, you know, and I probably wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Okay. Yes, I know nobody's perfect. Uh, I feel like I'm missing something here because I feel like I should like this song more than I do because the title alone should get it, but it just feels like a confusing mess, which I feel like there's something I'm, I'm, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I didn't, you know what I mean? I'm not listening to it right or don't know what I'm, going for here i didn't really i don't like it at all like i actually kind of hate it but if you guys have a better you know what i mean something that i'm i'm missing i mean this would be the only one that i i would think that i would um skip but you know even then it still held my interest for a little bit dave it, you know it, it it hops along at a nice little pleasant pace but it reminds me of something that uh would have come off of uh you know, it's it's like a watered down ladies' room. You know, see you in your dreams, kind of derivative of, the, of that. Um, but it's not effective at all. Um, if you think those songs are effective, um, I'm a fan of them, by the way. But um, this just seems like a cheap imitation of, of those. It just really it doesn't do a whole lot for me. Mike, yeah, I just you know it's he's trying to say, you know, literally he's trying to sell us like, you know, he says like, you're not just sharing our shining armor. You know, that's, yeah, that's me. And it just doesn't really, doesn't, I'm going to strike while the iron is hot. There's too many cliches when it comes to the lyric approach. I mean, it, like when he does the thing, like, you know, in the pre-courses, like it's time to take off our clothes, take them off, baby. You know, I, you know, it just, 
is that the best you had to offer for this song? I, I don't know. But, you know, but two other points, too, is we've mentioned this kind of like a hot licks of Ace Frehley's, you know, guitar licks. Um, the, the song in this song is very similar to the stuff that's going on in Love and Leave Him. Uh, but there's also parts of this song that remind me of the band Stars, who oh, okay. are also in a coin, you know, managed band. I think it's kind of cool. It, this it was refreshing for me to hear the song and, and, and look at it through that lens. I think there are certain things in the song that sound like st something the Stars would have done. You know, which, you know, there, there are countless bands like, you know, Motley Crue, obviously Nikki Six and other, you know, artists who have credited Stars as being an influence. But whether or not there's a direct influence on this song, I don't know. But I, that, that, that kind of shines through in, in my view. Yeah. Lyrically on this song, I, I feel like he's kind of making a point about how any man trying to seduce a woman is essentially trying to sell ice to Eskimos, you know? <laughs> um, so there's a kind of self-consciousness about the absurdity of him being the great seducer when he realizes that in the end, he's just a guy and women can basically have any guy they want more or less. So really what's the point? Um, but does that make for a great song? No. <laughs> yeah well it could if he approached it you know what i mean like spent some time really diving deep into it instead of going with what he's got there but i wasn't in the room at the time okay stand uh second favorite song on the album i like the back and forth between gene and paul um, I like that it's, you know, about friends being together and standing up to everybody. And, you know, it feels like they're sort of even singing it to each other, you know, and a nice love song between Paul and um, Gene. So I, I like it a lot. I think it, it definitely is a good song. Dave? Yeah, I would agree. It's probably about my second favorite song on the record. It does remind me of something that could have been on Revenge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that whole breakdown, God gave rock and roll to you. It's kind of got that feel to me, you know, the breakdown, the, when they break down to those, the, the multi-harmonies and all that in there. And everything is a little, you know, the, the arpeggio guitar parts going on there underneath, you know, some of the other stuff. There's a lot of elements of, of, of something that could have fit on Revenge uh, in the vein of God Gave Rock and Roll to You. But I do like the, the fact, too, that it was after a long, perhaps a too long of an absence um, of, of the Gene and Paul trading vocals. Yeah. You know, and, and that was a welcome return for me. You know, again. Yeah, I like that when they do that. It gives you a sense of the band being something. Yes. So, yeah, definitely yeah. one of my favorite songs on the record. Mike? Yeah, I mean, all, to, to all the points that Dave just made, I mean, it definitely sounds like something that could have been on Revenge, uh, for sure, particularly the breakdown. It's very cool. Um, I love the, you know, the co-vocal between Paul and Gene. It's unexpected. Uh, but very welcome, you know, to, to see that. And it's obviously a Gene and Paul co-write. Um, and again, with the soloing, it, it, to me, that there's a lot of, you know, Bruce-influenced uh, guitar soloing on, on this song as well. So no wonder it sounds like something that could have been on Revenge. Yeah. Yeah, I like this song too. I mean, I, I think it's the one song where they're a little bit pushing the envelope and out of the box and off the beaten path lyrically in terms mm -hmm. of the overall subject matter, singing about 
you know, the power of, of, of friendship. And, you know, on, on one hand, I think you're right. It's probably about Gene and Paul's relationship, but it can also be about Kiss's relationship to their fans. Um, mm -hmm. There's this great essay that Kim Fowley wrote, uh, who co-wrote Do You Love Me and all that kind of stuff, uh, wrote about Kiss when the reunion came out where he said, you know, your parents divorced and your friends betrayed you and that girl broke your heart, but Kiss has always been there for you and they always will be, <laughs> you know. And uh, the, so there's a part of me that wishes they had played the song live because I could really hear this being an effective song in an arena, you know. Um, one thing about it that kind of bothers me, and this, maybe this is nitpicking, okay, but the whole lines in the song, stand be by my side, stand beside me, right? And then Paul says, just look behind you. Well, if somebody's standing beside me and I look behind me, I'm not gonna see anything because nobody's there, right? I mean, it's just, it, okay. <laughs> I agree well, at the same time well, too like you know yeah stand by my side and I'll be next to you you know isn't that obvious yeah there is a little a little nod to mainline in there too what's the mainline reference oh yeah mm, okay. yes one of the little hidden nuggets in there, guys. Yeah. I wish that Paul had thrown in uh, something about, like, believe it, you know, or something like that. Like, I feel like they were grasping for, yeah. you know, little additions to make there, and they they could have gone with that instead of something that took me out of the song. So. I agree. Yeah. Hot and cold. Filler. Uh, not good like I wanted it to be. But still good. I mean, it still rocks. You know what I mean. But nothing really stands out to me about it. Dave. Yeah, I feel pretty much the way the song title suggests. I'm hot and cold about this song. Yeah, you know, there's parts of the song I do like. There's other parts of the song that yeah, it rocks. It just doesn't, doesn't go anywhere. Doesn't you know, I I do like Gene's chasing little walking bass lines because I like that about Gene's playing when he actually flipping plays and he doesn't have Paul or somebody mm -hmm. else subbing for him. You know, he's got those Paul McCartney-esque walking bass lines that are kind of cool. And they're in here. Um, they're definitely in this song. I like that. Um, but beyond that, it's 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 not a, it's not the strongest Gene track. And it's not my not even nearly near my favorite song on this record. It's probably in my bottom third for sure. Yeah, that's funny that you'd meant because I have the walking bass line. I just even that didn't say yeah. it for me. Mike? Yeah, definitely the walking bass line, the chorus is one of the saving graces um, of the song, you know, and again, they, they're referencing, you know, classic, his, you know, lyrics like, you know, you'll be in misery and you know, that sort of stuff, you know, but you know, they've done it before. Um, but you know, at the same time, too, sometimes um, there'll be influences on records. And I think one of the things I hear in this uh, song is that sort of like uh, the real me, uh, the who kiss song. Ah. Mm-hmm in the verse, you know, which is, you know, you know, they're obviously, you know, they, they, they've seen the who they, you know, they, they're aware of the who, who the who, who the who is, you know, and you know, so, you know, cool. They bring that in. Uh, but to me that, you know, I'm, I, I hate to be the guy I, I'm getting better at it because I've always been the guy and Dave, Luke, really, you know, this, you know, if you say to me, like, I got this really great riff and I'll be the guy that says, yeah, that's a great riff. And it reminds me of 
Elton John, you know, <laughs> nothing to take the wind out of your sails when, you know, but at the same time too, I'm getting better at acknowledging the fact that yes, that's a cool riff and that is what it is and it'll stand on its own and we don't need to bring in the reference that, I, that I'm hearing, but at the same time, I'll embrace it, you know, so, but right. to me, yeah, there's, it, there's a who influence on, on this verse and I'll say that and leave it at that, but to me, the, the lyric, I'm sorry, the, the, the song title and the chorus confuses me. And I, the only thing that I can boil it down to, and hopefully Dave, you'll, you'll distill this for me, is it the fact that the girl is just too hot and that's the reason why she's too cold because she realizes she's just too damn hot? Um, <laughs> okay. I, I think you know, the, I mean, phrase, the phrase hot and cold, you know, more or less refers to somebody that is... Uh, into something alternately not into something right like if you're hot and cold about making an okay. investment you want to do it one second and the next second you've changed your mind so i you know i think that's yeah. it's a reference to that sexually uh you know she wants to one minute and the next minute is doesn't want to do it anymore and it's frustrating to gene um <laughs> you know i actually like the chorus i think the chorus is really super catchy um, mm -hmm. I, I feel like if the rest of the song was as good as the chorus, this could be a really good song. I think the, the verses to me are, are, are not especially memorable. Um, and I like when Paul comes in and does the vocal at the end. That's like very classic 70s kiss to me when he's doing that solo mm -hmm. vocal part there. And I think that works really well. So this could have been one of my favorite songs on the album, but I think it really needed a stronger verse. You know, David, but you taught me something today because I always thought the song was about menopause. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, to also to David Lucarelli's point too about, you know, if, if the point of reference is the who, you know, the real me, the, you know, the real me chorus is so damn strong. Yeah. You know, and, and no matter what, no matter how convincing Roger Jolchi's vocals are on, on the verse in that song, when it comes to the chorus, there's an uplift there in that chorus, man. You know? Oh, yeah. You're just, when you, you just, when you listen to the verse, you're waiting for that chorus to, you know, and to, to, to be the uplift. And it, it's great. You know, in a way, I agree. You know, the chorus in this song is musically the most interesting part of the song. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, I mean, not to get totally off, off topic, but I maintain that the Quadrophenia is the best thing that, the who has ever done oh, it just doesn't yeah. get as much credit because it wasn't quote unquote the first concept album or whatever but yeah i agree with you man yeah great stuff ah interesting stuff. i took a class in high school where we actually they spent two like two to three days talking about quadrophenia it was in a high school class and we read i mean there were lots of like actual books we read but the teacher used quadrophenia as the hook to get us in, you know, interested in the class or whatever. So that's, that's kind of cool. Neat. All right. All for the Glory, which features Eric Singer on vocals. I love it. It's cheesy as I'll get out, but I love it. I'm dumb all about All for the Glory and, you know, that kind of stuff. I like the lyrical content. I like that kind of stuff. I've heard people say that they don't like this song at all, but I like that Eric gets a chance to sing. I like the, you know, it's got a huge, powerful, you know, chorus. It gets me all pumped up inside. So yeah, I liked it. Dave, you know, it's got that lyrical theme um, that we saw over the last couple albums. You know, Psycho Circus and this. This could have been a cool little EP. You know, All for the Glory, uh, Raise Your Glasses, I Pledge mm -hmm. Allegiance, God Gave Rock and Roll to You. You know, they would all fit kind of on one little EP. 
Yeah, I like it. It's a good, it's a good song. I, I'm not as convinced about the chorus as Brother John is. I think the chorus to me is the short ball of this song. I think there's something about the chorus that sounds a little bit, I don't like the cadence of it. It's a little rushed to me. Um, it's, it's just a little unrealized. I think it could have used a little more work on, on polishing that chorus up a little bit, but it, it, it just as loses its impact to me when it gets to that part of the song. But I like the, the rest of the song enough to where I can forgive that. So it's definitely one of my favorite songs. It's really, that's an interesting, but yeah, I never really thought about, but I, I can see where you're coming from. Mike? Again, I'll, I'll only be the guy that says this, this song reminds, reminds me of certain songs, but the intro reminds me of uh, the Guns N' Roses song Pretty Tied Up from the uh, User Illusion uh -huh. albums, right? That kind of, that, that sort of, you know, staccato, you know, chugging rhythm. Um, you know, like, the, I guess, you know, it's cool that at the time, the fact that, you know, Eric is a drummer, obviously, and his heart's going to beat like a drum, you know, in the first line of the lyric, you know, so cool we get that point. Um, I agree, the chorus... And the only point of reference I could uh, bring up is, you know, there, there, there are certain songs that have annoying quote unquote choruses. And one of those is Loverboy's Loving Every Minute of It. Mm. It's loving every minute of it, loving every minute of it, loving every minute of it. You know, it just, okay, I get it. You know, it's like, it's too much, you know. Can we have a little space in, in the chorus? It'd be helpful. Um, but, you know, and then again, tying it to the, to the lyrics, Dave, I mean, all for the glory of what? Okay, so <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, there's there's obviously you know, the all for the glory of love, you know, the Karate Kid thing kind of thing, you know, but like. You know. So I can speak to that. So Gene gave an interview right around the Hot in the Shade era, where they said to him, you know, why do you keep Kiss going? You guys could retire. You have enough money. You know, you're getting older. Why do you still want to record albums and tour? And his answer was. It's called glory and wars have been fought over it and people have died for it. And it's the best thing in the world. Yeah. You know, um, the title's also obviously a play on the three musketeers famous line, all mm -hmm. for one, one for all. That is that if one of the four musketeers gets captured, the three will come for it. But if the three get captured, the one will come for him, right? So that they are a team ultimately that will leave no man behind. And I do think that the song works because to a certain extent that's true about this lineup. I mean, yes, on one level, Tommy Thayer and Eric Singer are essentially employees, but I do think that they get yeah. along well and that they enjoy each other's company and that they hang out, you know, as much as and are as friendly as they could be within an employer employee type of relationship. He starts the song off for, you know, get ready to run with me. You know, I'm, you know we're going to fly, whatever, right? Let's run together. And then yeah. in the bridge, he says, I don't run. Now, I know that he's talking about I don't run away from things versus let's run towards our yeah. dreams. But, you know, if we're going to use these metaphors in the same song, don't directly <laughs> contradict yourself by the time you get to the verse, right? Either you run or you don't, okay? Yeah. Great point. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I like this song. I mean, I know what you guys are saying about the chorus. I, I think if they, there's that one point where he doubles up that, you know, says glory, glory, 
like mm. twice. I think they could have lost that. That would have opened it up a little bit, made it not quite so busy. I like the line in the verse where he talks about, um, you know, people follow us wherever we go or, you know, they hang out all the places we go and, and all the people we know and whatnot. And I might be guilty of that. (laughs) So I kind of related to that. Um, you know, and any song that has that, that kernel of truth in it, I think is ultimately a a good song. I would, I would, if they broke this out, I would, I would want to hear it. Yeah. 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 It's powerful. Yeah. All right. Danger us. Danger you, danger me, danger us, mister. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, that's what I felt like it was. I was like, what the hell, man? I don't know. I I almost didn't want to, you know what I mean? Because I was using those um, files and I can only play one song at a time or whatever. I didn't even see the title. You know what I mean? I just kept pr- pressing the button and I was like, oh, it's called Dangerous. All right, Dangerous is cool. And then it's Danger Us. And I was like, oh, man. So whatever. It's Philip. I don't like it. Move on. Yeah. <laughs> Dave? You know, this is a song that could have been, I just, I, I like it musically a lot, believe it or not. Uh, there's a lot mm. about this song I like. Uh, the, the chorus was a little awkward to me, I have to admit it. You know, the danger you, danger me, danger us. You know, it's kind of a little cliche in an odd way. Um, little, I, I, I don't know. It's just, it, the, the chorus makes me feel a little uncomfortable. You know, but I like this song. Be the song I would have written when I was like 13. Yeah, that's it. I mean, yeah, exactly. Well put, John. You know, but beyond that, I mean, musically, it's a great song. I like Thomas' guitar playing. I like the arrangement of the song. It's just... Parts of those lyrics kind of really, uh, as John says, I, I would expect a 12-year-old to write something like that. I think it was cool. Because it's not, it's like dangerous, but not with the O. No, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it almost sounds like a Saturday morning cartoon theme, you know, for like the G.I. Joe show or something like that, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's just, it, it would fit lyrically better with something like that that I'd have a bowl of cereal watching um, and too much sugar as a kid, but on a Kiss record, I can do without it. Mike? Um, you know, I, I'll point out the good things about the, you know, the record that are, you know, references to previous albums. I think the intro is reminiscent of the Domino uh, intro from, you know, Revenge. I think that kind of, you know, plays in, into this. Uh, again, if you're going to use this as an opportunity to say, that you know, a lot of Ace Frehley licks, you know, they are, those are displayed on inter, on this record in terms of you know solo likes. That's cool. Um, I, I personally think they were trying too hard with it. You know, once I got to the punchline of you know danger you danger me danger us, I got it. You know, it's like okay, really is that where it's going? You know, but then I immediately thought of like, you know, I, I don't know why I always come back to bands like Rat, but like you know dangerous but worth a risk. Like dangerous but what? You know, really, <laughs> you know, it, it's got to be some other payoff. Like that is the payoff in this song. That is the punchline. I don't know. I felt like I, I felt like it was a little, you know, sold short when it comes to you know to the chorus on this song. Um, you know, but at the same time too, the riffs are great. You know, it's a well-written song. The structure's yeah, great. Again, it rocks. Yeah, it's, yeah it, right. But it just doesn't. Yeah, it's not a song I'm going to put on a playlist somewhere for. Some yeah, the, the the chorus. I think he found it. He, he it was too clever for his own good. Uh huh. Yeah, I agree with you guys. The chorus is a bit silly i can really hear the strain 
in Paul's vocals on this track in certain places mm. where it's like, hmm, yeah, okay. Um, I I, I kind of like the verses, you know, mm. it reminds me of um, the Motley Crue song Hammered uh, from yeah. the John Karabi album where they have that descending hammered, hammer boy, you know. Um, yeah, I think yeah, 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 that is a great well song. produced record too. Yeah, it's a well produced yeah. record for sure. Yeah, yeah, and I think that they probably cop a, a feel for that for for part of the verses there. But yeah. yeah, you're you're right. It ultimately, you know, the chorus needs to be the best part of the song, and and by that standard, the song doesn't get there. So, okay, um, I'm an animal. I actually like this one. I know it's you know. Uh, I, I, it's, you know, it's got kind of a cool riff. It's kind of growly. It's a good Gene Demon song. It actually stood out as like something I kind of like. I expected not to like it because there's so many songs in metal that refer to yourself as an animal. Oh, you yeah. know what I mean? But actually, I think it's pretty clever the way you put it together. So I actually kind of liked it. Dave? You know, it's kind of got, I see where it was going. It kind of had that Zeppelin esque feel in places mm -hmm. to me. Um, not overtly, but I, I get the I get the essence of part of it. But in some ways, I felt like it was a Gene song I've heard before, um, in, in different uh, in different guises. Yeah, it just. But I, I feel like the song plots. Um, it's not one of my favorite songs uh, on this record, but um, I think Gene's bass playing is great on it. And I think there's some other elements of the song I really like. I actually think musically, I mean, all the guys are playing really well. So that that little that little um, essence of Zeppelin is there. I like that. It's just mm -hmm. for some reason the song just doesn't quite capture my imagination. Okay, Mike. Yeah, I mean, cool. It's a co-write between uh, Paul, Gene, and Tommy. You know, obviously the, the band vibe is happening there uh, for sure. You know, to echo Dave's point about it, it sounds like something that might have been on a previous Kiss record. This kind of sounds like their attempt at, you know, doing something like War Machine for the album. Um, but, you know, again, I'm not a lyric guy, but when it comes to lyrics, like, you know, if you're an animal, aren't most animals free in the first place? Unless they're domesticated, so does it really need to be stated? I, you know, I, you know, I, this is why I don't write lyrics. <laughs> so, yeah, it just doesn't. It doesn't. It, the chorus doesn't doesn't pay off. Okay, I'll I'll play contrary to that. I okay. To me, the chorus is great. I love the chorus. The Good. to me, the verses don't work, and the reason why the verses don't work for me is because I know. Gene simply stole a lot of these lyrics from another song that he wrote, Feels Like Heaven, which was on the second real Peter Chris solo album, Let Me Rock You. And it, it's weird the way that he stole them because that song was sort of like, uh, it was like a seduction type song. So it was like, you know, don't need no, you know, father preacher to tell me what I see don't need no superstition you know to tell me what I am I can make you feel like heaven yes I can and and here he's basically repurposing the same lyrics but making it about like you know don't need astrology don't you know and it just doesn't it doesn't work you know I I think if to me the chorus works but the verses just feel like he's 
regurgitating stuff that he's done before and don't really support what the song is supposed to be about. Huh, that's yeah. interesting. I didn't, yeah, I didn't. <laughs> Okay, when lightning strikes. It seems to be sort of a, a showcase for Tommy to play in and as well as sing in. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, one, it's, it's not a bad song at all. I liked it a lot, actually. It's, I like Tommy's playing on it. I like his singing on it. It's not super great. Like I said, this wouldn't go on some sort of playlist for me driving across the country or anything, but I still thought it was, you know, not bad. And, and, and also just like all for the glory, I like hearing uh, Tommy Thayer sing, you know, something different. Dave, I know you already told me this is your favorite song on the album, right? Two times. I mean, yeah, I listened to it with both ears and that's <laughs> different. <you know? laughs> At the same time, right? <laughs> yeah, I do. You know, there's there's a lot about the song I do like. I tried to give Tommy some credit here. Listen to it again, thinking there's a lot of Tommy in this song as far as the guitar playing. But when you go back and listen to it again critically, you go, no. I mean, there's definitely a lot of the you know the 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 cops of you know Ace riffs from the past, which is what he got paid to do. Um, but there's an ironic line in here in some ways. So when I, I think there's a line here is when I when I, I take the lead, it's my time to shine. Uh -huh. um, it's kind of there's an iron there's an irony to that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, one part of it is as a, as a vocalist, I actually do think I like his vocal. And when they actually did this tour, and we'll talk about the tour in a minute, I would have liked for them to do this as opposed to shock me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I do like I do like a lot about this song, but I also find the irony. It's you know, I take the lead. It's my time to shine. It's like, well, maybe not necessarily a hundred percent on this record because. You know, they really constrained you um, to playing a lot of a lot like Ace. Um, so there's a clever little irony in that little line there. But I do like the song. And believe it or not, it's one of my favorites on the record. Mike? Again, I'll be the bad guy and say it sounds like Uriah Heep. Mm -hmm. Right? Or you know, White Snake, you know, spit it out or whatever. Either way, you know, despite that. It's a great shining moment for, for, for Tommy as a, as a songwriter and as a soloist also. His vocal approach for sure is unique. And I was trying to think of who he reminds me of. And again, I'm not the kind of guy that it makes everybody, you, you sound like this and you sound like that. Um, but I remember um, at the time when uh, Don Felder from the Eagles was releasing an album about 10 years ago and he was gonna do a show at the Troubadour. And I went to, I remember we bought tickets to the show and I thought, what is Don Felder gonna sound like singing Eagles songs? You know, can he do it? Is he really known? He's really not known as like a lead vocalist other than like Victim of Love. He, he was supposedly going to be singing that song on, on Eagles records, but he didn't do it. Um, but in the best way, and it's the biggest compliment I can pay Tommy, Tommy sounds like Don Felder. Okay. You know, it, it, it revisit some of, you know, Don Felder's still the records that he released after, you know, much like, you know, heavy metal from the uh, the heavy metal soundtrack or other, yeah. you know, other songs that, you know, that Don has done. Um, to me, Tommy sounds like Don Felder in the best way, and I mean seriously in the best way, but at the same time too, yes, there are the ace references with the licks and stuff, but for God's sakes, you know, who wouldn't want to be in you know, the guitar player in, in Kiss and be given an opportunity to write some songs with Kiss and be on the record, you know, so hats off to him for you know, mm -hmm. stepping up and, and doing that. Yeah. Good for him, man. He put in the work and he deserves it, so. 
Yeah, I, I I like the song a lot too. I wish that they I agree with Dave O'Leary that I wish that they would have played this live instead of having Tommy play Ace's signature song, you know, live, which nobody would people really clamoring to see that? I don't think so. I mean, let you know, if you want to see that, then go see Ace. I mean, anyhow. Um I like the song. I mean, lyrically, it's a little cliche, but I think it strings the cliches together in kind of an intelligent way that works and makes a point. And uh, the the lines that stick out to me are black cloud and the rebel sun that, you know, there's, I think there's a kernel of truth to that. You know, uh, Tommy Thayer is the son of a guy who was a military man. You know, and as understanding and as close as he may have been with his father, you know, you don't grow up to be a rock and roll guitar <laughs> player without there being a little bit of friction there. Right. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I think there's the kernel of truth there that that, you know, helps make the song as effective as it is. So final song, Say Yeah. Uh, it's a good closer. You know, it rocks, but nothing really, you know, I, I like, you know, I like songs like that that are just sort of um, going all out. Uh, but again, it doesn't particularly, you know, again, it's not, I keep saying this over and over again, it's not going on a, on a playlist or anything like that. Like I liked it, but I, and it's a good closer and it's exciting and all that kind of stuff, but nothing stands out to me. Dave? You know, I, I, I like the song. There's a couple of things that, that, that stand out to me here. One, it's got kind of Paul's, uh, in his bag of, of songwriting tricks, you go back to, as an example, Psycho Circus, that little breakdown when he plays that little arpeggiated, you know, chord part in there. This is in there, too. You know, it's one of those several songs that Paul has that he just relies on that um, during the breakdown. The solo, which I'm not, by the way, I, I don't have a problem with. It, it works in this song. Um, but, you know, I listened to the song. I actually have to listen to it a couple times, the solo, because I actually went back and listened to uh, 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 Bruce's solo on Tears Are Falling. Uh -huh. and, and there's just a lot about this solo that reminds me of Bruce's solo on uh, Tears Are Falling. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it's just, you know, it's not, again, it's not a one-to-one. -one. It's not necessarily as obvious as some of the things they try to pull in from Ace's playing, uh, his repertoire, but there is definitely the essence of of, of Bruce's uh, playing is is channeled on his solo in places, and I actually like that. Um, yeah, decent way to close a record. Not one of my favorites, but a decent way decent way to close out. Mike, yeah, again to echo you know Dave's comments about the, you know the song and the solo, and for sure I could hear you know some of the Bruce influence as well, if you want to call it influence, um, it, it's definitely there. Um, there's a there's a drama to the chords, you know that that you know of the of the you know that, that Paul's playing. And I was it, I haven't listened to this record in quite a few years. When I listened to it this last week, I was reminded of uh, an album by a band called War Babies. Uh -huh. um, and there were a couple of songs that Paul had co-written with the, with those guys. And one of those songs was "Cry Yourself to Sleep." And that song, for sure, this song reminds me of that in a way, where it's like the the E minor, you know dramatic sort of, you know, verses and stuff. And, you know, that comes through in a strong way. You know, so I, again, I always like the fact that I can hear these Kiss albums and go back to other artists, you know, that, that I have in my collection, listen to that and, and find that, you know, there was a co-write by Paul and, and that's cool and all, but check that out. You might, you know, be reminded of that as well. Um, you know, debatable whether or not, you know, Cry Yourself to Sleep is a better song than, you know, Say Yeah. 
you know, I'll leave it up to you guys. Uh, but, you know, the other po point too is, um, you know, obviously Kiss is not shy about the fact that they've been influenced by the Beatles. So, you know, she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so I get it. Uh, but at the same time too, uh, for them on, you know, the uh, end of the end of the road tour, like, you know, they're playing this song repeatedly on this tour. I mean, repertoire, catalog. They've got so many other songs that are so well established. This is this the song that needs to be in the set? You know, I don't know. You know, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm cool with the fact that they're proud of the album and they want to, you know, represent it. But at the same time, too, you've only got you know ninety minutes, you know, maybe two hours of, of time of the audience's you know attention. Give them something else that most of the people will know because at the same time too, you know, on the reunion tour in '96, they would occasionally play songs like "Take Me" from Rock and Roller, which we all probably loved if you happened to see it. But at the same time too, I remember seeing them play "Take Me" in Cleveland, and half the audience was like, "What the hell is this song? Is this a Kiss song? I don't know what the song is." They were beside themselves. What the hell is going on here? Mm. You know, I think the same thing happens when they play this song on the tour. But, you know, I get the thing where you've, you've got new material, you want to present it, but at the same time, if it's the end of the road and you want to do your, your goodbyes, give them the most you have and the most recognizable stuff. And if you want to go deep, then go deep with something like something from The Elder or something deep from like Lick It Up or, or Creatures, you know, but I'll stop at that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I hate to end this on kind of a negative note, but I've never particularly liked this song. It's always felt very kind of generic and paint by numbers and disposable to me. And I just feel like if they're going to, I understand them wanting to play something from the current lineup. I feel like they could pick virtually any song off of monster and it would be a stronger song live than this song. It just, you know, and I'd still much rather hear something like Modern Day Delilah or When Lightning Strikes or All for the Glory uh, than, than this song live. Um, I, I don't know. It, it doesn't stand out to me as being a particularly special song or a memorable song. I mean, you know, in a way, I guess it's the cousin to no, 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 right? Don't say no, say yeah. Okay, well, yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, too, to echo you know Dave's point, you know, it, it's a, it's a good closer to the album. You know, if you want to focus on the record itself, it, it works as a closing song on the record. Yeah, but the the live is you know it's up to them and it's up to us as fans to decide whether or not we like it. You know, but it ultimately means nothing to them. So, I'm a big, big, huge Eddie Murphy fan. Okay. And Eddie Eddie Murphy used to have this 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 uh, part of his show where he talked about Chinese food. I love Chinese food. This album reminds me of Chinese food. You eat it, kind of tastes good when you're eating it, but a half an hour later, you feel empty again. Yeah. <laughs> right. It rocks <laughs> all the way yeah. through. Yeah. You know, it's kind of analogous but to that. But it doesn't. It's like uh, you listen to it and a half an hour later. Do anything like, oh, beyond that. Maybe it wasn't as, as, as fulfilling as I thought or filling as I thought it would be. And that's how I feel about this album in general. That's a very good analogy. I would agree with it wholeheartedly. Okay. Love that. Yes. Excellent. And I think there's a fine line between not wanting to overthink stuff and not wanting to overcook stuff and settling mm -hmm. for less than the best of what you're capable of. And, you know, I think when this album works, it works because they achieve that immediacy. Um, and when it doesn't work, it's because they settle for something that's good, but not great. Right. 
Well, I think they wanted to get something new out there. They wanted it to be, they didn't want to overthink it, but then they didn't want to, then they wound up not thinking much about it at all. And then, right. you know, they wanted that Walmart product. So I don't know. I think they, it feels, I mean, and now you're telling me they did it in what, like four months or whatever. It sounds, you know, and they wrote it while they were on tour. It sounds like they kind of rushed it. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. Well, for but them, they were also used to that. That, that was their lifestyle yeah, in the yeah. 70s, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is. Can I? Can we also get into the fact of, of the fact um, the, the album cover art? Like, how did the artist from the Rock and Roller album become involved in the, the, the artwork for this record? Paul wanted it. Simple as that. Okay. I wonder how much did Walmart have in the um, production? You know, edge of it. I can find out. I I, did, I would if I should I should have thought about that ahead of time. I used to know that at one point in time, uh, but I know Paul was just enamored with the whole idea. Again, look, go back to listen to the record. There's so yeah. much it, that's, that does remind you of rock and roll over yeah. parts. And mm -hmm. so I know Paul was after that, kind of actively looking for that, chasing that, uh, maybe wanting in his own way to outdo what Eddie Kramer, because I think, you know, Paul wasn't mm -hmm. always, at, at least at this point in his life, he is a little outspoken at times about his dislike for the production of rock and roll over. Um, and Eddie Kramer's job as an as a producer and engineer anyway, uh, mm -hmm. with the Kiss albums. Interestingly enough, so I think maybe Paul and his mind wanted to go back and write that wrong. Um, I think he also, as part of that, wanted to go back and say, "Hey, we're going to do a classic Kiss album. We're not going to hire Ken Kelly again." Um, mm -hmm. And Rock and Roll Over is kind of the the blueprint we're looking for. Let's go back and get that artist. But I know that a hundred percent of that idea to, to hire him came out of Paul. Hmm. Okay. So Dave, what were your impressions of the, of the show? I didn't like Tommy doing shock me. Yeah. It's not a knock on Tommy. It's not a knock on Tommy portraying that old spaceman at all. It was more, it had more to do with me with playing material that was timely and relevant to that current line, lineup. You went through the trouble of doing a new record and you choose to do mm -hmm. shock me instead of Tommy's thing. Right. Um, and that's just, just a, a, a personal thing for me. Um, I didn't like the fact they opened personally with modern day Delilah. I just didn't think it was a strong opener. Um, mm. you know, uh, just maybe I'm too old school when it comes to that. I'm, I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth, but I just don't think that's the strong opener. Um, so there was that part. Cause it just kind of, you know, when they came on, they're playing that opening riff as they're coming down from, you know, the risers out of the, out of the lighting. Uh, right. So yeah. it's like, and it goes on and on and on kind of, you know, the rift to nowhere um, yeah. until, until Paul hits Mike. And, and it's just, it just didn't have the same impact as something like I stole your love when you're doing that. Yeah. You know, at least with I stole your love, you know, there was some dynamics there as far as the arrangement was when they were coming down those risers on that old stage, it, it kind of built into the whole band. You know, when they hit the floor, it was, it, it, it just didn't start with the same cadence, the same tempo, the same force. So it just it just seemed to me that it didn't give them a lot of places to go dynamically, um, you know. It was starting that with starting the show that way, and then also I'm an animal was in that set, and I just didn't think it don't work live at all. I just think it plotted, it dragged. I would have rather heard War Machine or something like that. Um, but it's just it was just a couple song choices that I could have lived without. But it, it was an okay show. Well, you know, think about this too. It's not out of the question for them to open, uh, you know, the tour uh, or the set on a tour with a new song. I mean, they've done that since, you know, right. Destroyer or, you know, 
creatures, and they, they've done that, you know, a bunch of times before, but at the same time, too, would the, the leading track from this album be the strongest opening song in the set? Probably not. Right. I agree. And I was hoping they would play more songs from this album live, because I saw, you know, when they actually did the... Um, Kiss Cruise set list, they played a lot of this album live. Yeah, they did. Yeah. And then they immediately dropped it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and even, you know, going back to that, even Say Yeah, what strikes me even to this day about Say Yeah, it just sounds like Paul's out of tune. You know, it just sounds like that mm. one of his, his guitar, maybe Tommy's guitar, every time, and it's just stuck in my head, probably from the first time of hearing it in, in uh, Phoenix, I just thought, oh my God, Paul sound, Paul's guitar sounds like it's out of tune. Uh-huh. He sounds like like a, a just a quarter step off, you know. It's just just mm-hmm. something's off in that. And what we were talking about last week, you know, the buzz fighting system. One guy using that, the other guy not. Right. Right. Yeah. It's something that's awkward. It's off. It's not. The intonation is wrong. There's something that's just quite not right with um, the tuning, especially against Tommy's guitar. Okay. And, and maybe stuck with me that night and I hear it it's one of those things I consistently hear every time I hear him play it live now I can't unhear it yeah um but it's, it's, so there's that it's just kind of it's there's something about that song I didn't think it translated well live I think there was better song choices on that album to play live than say yeah but I think it's Paul's thing I think Paul really likes it and you know Paul you know is, is if he falls in love with the song like I still love you and it's going in there um <laughs> <laughs> right. oh, yeah. yeah so i think I, I think say yeah it was probably a little bit of that maybe um it just didn't translate well life but you know it was it was an okay you know tour but i, I gotta say I, I would probably rate this tour out of all the kiss tours i've seen which i've seen pretty much all of them for the most part probably my least favorite kiss tour hmm. okay which is not necessarily a bad thing yeah yeah go on Right. Okay. No better than an Alice in Chains tour. <laughs> True. <laughs> I didn't want to cut my wrist on the show. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, then join us next week for an in-depth look at the, as of this podcast, final Kiss studio album, Monster. <laughs>